Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Sasha Rose, the CEO of Derek Rose. Derek Rose is somewhat unusual in that it is a family-run company with its manufacturing base still in England. Sasha, the CEO, is the grandson of its founder, Jack Rose, and son of Derek Rose, after whom the company is named. Sasha joined the family business in 2003 and has transformed it into a company that thrives on community, their own, and that of their customers. Sasha, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Today, we're going to be talking a bit about luxury, but mostly about you. And I was just wondering how you kind of got to where you are now working in a clothing company. Yeah, it's an unusual path, I suppose. I, after university, I qualified as a solicitor, worked in corporate finance, uh, left that to work in a hedge fund doing structured finance, and then um, decided that I wanted to... Uh, take on something a little bit different and see if it was possible to take over this business and do something with it. Um, so I got my job through the basic route of nepotism. And uh, after that, it was just about what, what can one do with the, the business and a wonderful brand like Derek Rose. But I joke about the nepotism part, but actually that was probably initially one of the biggest challenges when you come into a business, a family business, is for the people who are already in the business it's like who is this guy and why is he running this business um what are his credentials and uh why should we give him the time of day so the first thing you need to do is, is come into the business and get people on board and effectively constantly trying to prove to them that you're not an idiot the wonderful thing about this business is we've got people uh who've been here 30 40 years um one of the guys um mick who just retired uh in uh december he actually uh he, when I was a kid, uh, and my dad used to bring me up to the factory, he used to pack me in a box in the warehouse. And I thought that it was a game, but in reality, I was such an annoying child that they were literally packing me in a box. Um, and he remembers that. So uh, I, I like to think that I, st I still have my doubters and I have to live up to high standards as best I can. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of, you know, that's part of a challenge of being in that environment. I suppose if a family business, you always have those challenges, don't you, really? Actually, I think it's any business. Um, I think the moment you think that you can relax and settle down, uh, you're in trouble. Um, from a business perspective, we actually call it institutionalized paranoia. Um, we think that it's a really healthy mindset where you are constantly uh, fearing that you might not be as good as you could be, um, whether it's in terms of your processes, your people, your product. And then uh, that, that fear, that paranoia keeps you on your toes and keeps you pushing forward. Yeah. So, I mean, how do, you th how do you think your business then has changed? On the one hand, you could argue that the business has changed quite a lot and we can happily discuss that. But on the other hand, actually, I don't think the core of the business has changed much at all. So when I joined the business, one of the things I, I did was I sat down with each and everyone in the business and, and said, what is it we do? And back then, the company was called Derek Rose Pajamas Limited. And lo and behold, everyone I sat down with said, oh, well, you know, we make the best men's nightwear, we make the best men's pajamas, we make the best men's pajamas and dressing gowns. And what I found quite interesting about that was everyone was thinking at a product level, whereas when I was looking at it, I was thinking, you know, we're in the business of helping people relax and comfort and style, which if I fast forward to, you know, my more recent learnings, because I try and read a lot, um, and you take a book like Start With Why by Simon Sinek, he'll talk very much about the why and not the what. And for me, it was always clear that the why was the important part. Um, so 
in that sense, we're still doing what we were doing back in 2003 and before, which is, you know, helping people enjoy their free time. Um, I suppose fundamentally at a, at a uh, team and product level, the business has evolved because it's a larger business. We've got more people involved. Uh, we have a broader mix of products. But in terms of what we're trying to do on a day-to-day -day basis, it's exactly the same. It's help people enjoy their free time in comfort and style and, and ultimately uh, make best-in-class best in products to do that. I mean, the business is 100 years old and you know it's still family-run. There are not that many businesses that are family-run that have that history and that have a son of the you know the, the one of the founders at the helm of the business so you came in without a fashion background being a lawyer asking people what they thought the business was because you very much about the quality of the product exactly i mean uh, first of all i should be uh, i'm always very open about provenance i have no issues with provenance not everything we made is in the uk uh, but we do still maintain production of our uh, higher, highest end products in the UK. Um, and I've never been a, a fan of provenance as a point of selling. Uh, let me make this very clear. I do not think that because something is made in the UK, it is superior in quality or make. Um, it's about the people who make it, the, the tools and techniques that they use, and also about the environment in which they're employed uh, and the nature of the company uh, and how it's run. Um, which is a whole separate discussion. But uh, in terms of, I mean, if, if you want to get into sort of the challenge of having a great product or a high quality of service, that is at the very heart. I, I think it's at the heart of any successful business. Um, and these things start at the top of a business and trickle down. And ultimately, it's very simple for, for me. It's, it's If we want to exist as a business and ultimately create jobs, which is what we're here to do, to protect and create jobs, then we need to have a long-term strategy that is uh, viable. And if we cannot maintain the highest possible standards of product and service, then ultimately we would be facing some level of decline. And that's not going to help us create jobs over the long term. How you actually execute on that is a whole separate thing. Well, one doesn't often hear CEOs of companies talk in the way that you're talking about, you know, the importance of the um, the workforce, you know, the people that you employ, the importance of the people who make the things that you sell. That is not the way the CEOs generally discuss their businesses. Um, well, I think it's, you know, people talk about different aspects. There'll be people who talk about their employees, their teams, and, and the infrastructure around the business. And there's a lot of people who will focus on uh, the end user or the customer. Um, I always get told off using technology references because I say end user. But, um, uh, and there'll be people who, who talk about their products or their services. Um, to me, it's, it's, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. I, I don't need to run this business to make money. That's not the core objective. It's a byproduct. The first thing we're here to do is if we can make products that help people enjoy those special moments that we talk about in terms of their free time, we talk about time with family, time with friends, and time alone. If we make a product that helps any one of those moments for someone with by 0.01 of a percent, then we've done our job. That's, that's on the consumer uh, end user side. And then on the internal side, it's can we create an environment where people enjoy coming to work, where they're treated fairly, where they're paid fairly, and where ultimately over the long term, we can create jobs 
and employment and we're then giving back in terms of the cycle of society it's not none of this stuff is uh rocket science as they say no it's not yeah like i was saying it's it's i suppose it's a refreshing approach or it's refreshing to hear that it should people, be sorry it shouldn't be it shouldn't be refreshing no but i mean people it, don't generally you don't hear of somebody running a company saying the things you're saying you know it's the bottom line you know ultimately it's about them making money and what i suppose why I, I suppose why i'm saying it's refreshing is because you're talking about there's an emotional attachment to the corporation that you're running is it emotional um am i to me it's it's so well i joined the business in 2003 and and it was it wasn't in the greatest position end of 2003 and it it was headed worse and just as we were starting to pick ourselves up off the floor we had 2008-9 uh the credit crisis and the the reality was that between the, that period uh a lot of jobs were lost and i just looked at the business and i was like this is this is not this is not the way a business should be we should be building a very very strong foundation which means that we can weather any sort of economic storm and then ultimately if we're in that position you're going to create a business that that protects and creates jobs which means that there's systemically within the business you have reduced risk um, and reduced volatility you work out the rate at which you can grow sustainably um, you don't pursue this high growth strategy that many other brands would be tempted to do because of the volatility and the risk attached to that um, and then you just be patient i'm running the same business plan i wrote in 2003 not one line in it has changed it's very boring yeah but the business has changed yeah, I'd, but not in the way you think. You're going to think of scale and, and product mix, but the way I like to think about it is, is I think we've got a, a great bunch, an even better bunch of people in the business today than we had in 2003. The, I look around me and, and I'm just, you know, it gives me great pleasure to see the people around me and to see how some of these people have developed over that period. And, and that's the way that the business has changed in my eyes. But obviously, from the outside looking in, you'll say you've got a broader mix of products and you've got a couple of stores and your online presence is whatever it is. But um, you should meet the people. They're great. What's the most exciting thing about what you do then? It's the people. Okay. What's great is, so there's a saying I really like, which is A's higher A's and B's higher C's. And I had this in my last job in the in the hedge fund, which was at the time the largest listed hedge fund in the world. So it had more cash than it knew what to do with. Um, and yet I was struck. I had my uh, we used to have these quarterly reviews, okay? And um, I had a quarterly review, and I had one negative mark on the whole review, which I wasn't obviously very happy about. And my negative, the the comment from my manager at the time. And this was the negative point was that I had an unparalleled thirst for knowledge. And uh, I remember looking at that thinking, great. And that phrase, A's high A's, B's high C's, I'm sitting there going, oh my God, uh, this guy's not an A. What does that make me? Um, and ultimately, A's don't want to work for B's. And I, at the time, I was arrogant enough to think that I might be an A. So uh, for me, what's been really interesting over the the last 17 years with this business is building a business that can attract A's 
setting up processes in an environment which can enthuse and deliver uh, the passion for those people. So, you know, I just had a review with one of our senior management uh, and when I say senior management, we're flat as a pancake. We've only got one layer of management. But, uh, um, and, you know, my question was, where are you going to be in three to five years? And the, the offense that was taken was fantastic. It was like, well, I'm going to be here and we're going to be doing this and we're going to be this size and we're going to, I'm going to have this in my team. And I was like, cool, just checking. And funnily enough, that person was thinking that I was asking from the perspective of, uh, um, I'm worried you're going to leave. Whereas actually my perspective was, I'm worried that you're not going to have enough challenges and I'm going to suggest you leave because we're not giving you the environment in which you can continue to develop. Um, and I've done that once before. I've once said to someone, you know, I think you're great and I hope you stay. But if I was your dad and I was looking at your career path, I would be looking at other options. And, and I think that's, that's, that's the bit I enjoy is, is, is getting great people on board and, and then empowering them and letting them do what they need to do, but ultimately also being there to, to, to guide and support. Sounds like a kind of place I'd like to work in. <laughs> I'd like to think so. I mean, I got pissed off. Like I was walking from, I'd been up in our factory in Congleton in Cheshire, and I got the train back to Euston, and I had to meet some people for dinner in Soho, back in the days where people went out for dinner. I don't know if you remember them. And um, so I was walking from Euston to Soho, and it was about 7.30 at night, uh, eight o'clock-ish by the time I got there, I guess. And the number of offices I walked past where there were people sitting at their desks working. And I was just like, what the... I can't allowed to say that. Probably not on your podcast. What on earth is going on here? He said politely. Um, and I was just thinking about it. And again, this is an abdication of responsibility or a lack of respect from the people at the top. Because... We pay people to work from nine till five or nine till five thirty, whatever it may be, in the in the location that it is. And if they're there at six o'clock every night, we're understaffed, and that is the management's responsibility to to say, right, this is not what we're paying these people to do. They should be going home at five thirty because we're all about valuing free time, you know. And there I am walking on my way to 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 this dinner and I couldn't believe the number of people still sitting at their desks at half past seven, eight o'clock at night. That's the sort of thing that really annoys me. Mm. I walk around the office at half five and tell people to piss off. <laughs> yeah, so uh, how has that changed over the past eight months or nine months? Well, I can't walk around the office, can I? Um, <laughs> no, if anything, um, I think, you know, I, you've just got a, I don't know, the COVID period. Working from home was really quite easy for us because we we were already set up with uh, all the infrastructure prior to that because we had put in Microsoft Teams quite a while ago. Um, it just took a while for them to update the product in a few key areas that, that helped. But um, again, it's it's about the people. It's always people. And the guys on our team are so passionate and focused on delivering quality and uh, doing it in an effective and efficient manner that it doesn't matter where you put them as long as you give them the tools to do the job. They just want to get it done. For my part, checking that people aren't working past half past five, that's actually harder. So I will, you know, I, on this call yesterday, one of the questions I asked was about that, this, this manager's couple of team members and what sort of hours she thought they were putting in and how we can curtail those if necessary. So it is harder to keep an eye on that. Um, but equally, you've got to understand that there are cycles in any business or in any product development pipeline and stuff like that. And 
what we don't say is, look, if someone needs to put in some hours for a week because they've got a, something to deliver and it's, you know, they want to deliver it, then do it. But what shouldn't happen is that those guys are there till six o'clock every day and it's the norm. That half hour every day, how much does that add up to in a year? It's a lot of hours. It's, it's wrong. You're producing luxury products. People are, are confined we? to. Are we? Okay, well, then that's the question. That's, I mean, do you think you know where I stand? Because we've discussed it before, and I have a whole thing about luxury. It's like, is Apple is an Apple iPhone a luxury product? You tell me. Is it well, over no, a billion I... in circulation around the planet? Does does that make it qualify as a luxury product? What is luxury? I, I um, do you know what the real luxury is in all of this? Across all of this, the real luxury is time. You speak to anybody, any of the billionaires out there, and you say, what's the one thing you want more of? And they'll say time. Time is luxury. And that's why we talk about moments, time with friends, time with family, and one of my all-time favorites, forgive the pun, time alone. Um, and so can a product be luxury? I guess it can. Do I want a product to be luxury? I'm not too fussed about that. I want the product to be fit for purpose to the highest standards possible. And, you know, I could take a T-shirt and theoretically make it what one might call luxurious by putting Swarovski gems on it. Um, and maybe someone would like that. Um, but for me, that would degrade the quality of the product uh, in terms of the functionality. We're a function, you know, a form of function debate. We are so epically function first because we think the true skill in design is is lead with function and if you're really good at design you can wrap the form layer around it afterwards whereas so much of fashion is fun, uh, form first and that is uh it's just not my world so um in terms of luxury yes clearly we'll be on a different path there brilliant answer <laughs> to a question that i didn't formulate very well no 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 but i I think what you've just said is really interesting because we live in a world where we are constantly sold this idea of luxury. You know, all you know, advertising for anything, you know, the whether it, whatever the brand is, um, they are trying to exude this um, lifestyle, which implies something that is aspirational, unachievable most in most cases, and they package that as luxury. Which is a, which is is commonplace in the world we live in because so many things have been you, you know the word normalized. Um, if you know at a product level, the normalization of luxury is where you can walk into a uh, lower level department store or brand and buy a cashmere jumper for forty quid. Do you genuinely think that that is a luxury cashmere jumper, or is it made from God knows what and the dregs of what might be you know? come on um or in terms of a holiday and they talk about a luxury holiday it's uh you'll walk into the space and you might be in an incredible hotel or a chalet or whatever it might be but ultimately the holiday is only going to be as good as the people that you're there with and and the t moments that you create together that's the stuff you'll remember not the the bathroom but it is, it, you know, if, if you're going to have a great time with these people and you can do it in a beautiful setting, then absolutely that makes sense. And if that's luxurious, then then why not? You know, there are degrees of luxury in that world. But for me, uh, sticking bells and whistles on a product just to, to make it look cool, um, if it's at the cost of the comfort, that ceases to be luxurious. Is the luxury the feeling that you are getting out of 
the use of that the use yeah. of the product so if you wear our swim shorts okay it doesn't matter all the stuff we've put into trying to make them the best swim shorts in the world the point is that if you put them on and you walk down the beach and it's either because of the fit or the lining or the quick drying element of the material or as importantly the design that's on the shorts if you just feel that 0.01% better about yourself as you toddle along then we've done our job we like to think it's the combination it's the sum of the parts and each one individually is tiny but when you combine all these things it's like with the underwear we when we did you know we did 2 years of r&d before we launched underwear back in 2013 and sorry the starting point for any product that we do is we'll we'll research and develop a lot of stuff but the only stuff that sees the light of day is where we think we've made it better than whatever exists in that space at the moment in in the market so if it's not the better then we don't launch it and there's stuff trust me there's stuff we haven't launched but with the underwear what was fascinating is you, you go out there and you say right well how do i benchmark the existing products what what actually are the criteria by which we should be assessing stuff before you can then actually assess it then you go away and say right can we improve on that can we make stuff better what are the points of difference and you end up in this really weird world where and query whether this is luxury okay where we'll look at it and go i don't understand why all these brands are putting elastic waistbands on their hipsters say and it's like i'm sitting there and i'm going i don't really want uh, elastic on my skin but you know what we can take this super expensive fabric that we're using and take it to the top of the inside of the waistband so i have no rubber on my skin now when we did our research no one said to us oh i hate having the rubber on my skin or another one was um people actually make underwear with buttons on the fly and I was there and I was like, am I seriously expected to undo the button every time? You know, please, come on. And But no one said to us, I hate the buttons on the fly. So all of the tiny details that you go into, and that's including things like the, the type of thread that you're using on stitching, the size of the needle and the impact it has on the material, all of that nth degree stuff alone means very little. But pull it together and you end up with... Uh, a product that is superior. And if someone wants to call that luxury, they can. To me, it's not luxury. It's basically doing the right thing by the customer and giving them the best possible product you can make. That's a new way of kind of describing it, isn't it? I mean, it's just, a, it's a new thought process because um, I think that if one were to ask or to delve into rationales behind um, product development, you wouldn't find necessarily find those types of questions being asked about a product but they should be because ultimately that's what design should be and a good company obviously to look at it is apple and if you think about i mean interestingly over the last uh what is it 13 years apple have moved quite far from the starting point of the iphone but the beauty of the iphone i think it was in 2007 was that an eight-year-old or an 80-year-old could pick up that product and use it the menu structure now and the functionality is so much more complicated today than it was back then. But back then, you had, you literally were starting uh, uh, from zero because they had to educate the world on the concept of a touch screen and using a touch screen as your primary input methodology. So it, it's you know that type of product and the, the luxuriousness of, of that simplicity. Uh, it's something that evolves over time. But those guys, generally speaking, in the tech space, tend to come at it much more from a, a, a consumer viewpoint. Um, and that 
I suppose in fashion, there's also this thing where you're trying to create objects of beauty. Fashion isn't just about functionality. Fashion's about beauty and the aesthetics. But then I think Apple, again, and I'd like to think that we too, to our lesser degree, have shown that you can still lead with function, but then wrap the beauty around it. And, you know, they care very much about how nice an iPhone or an iPad or whatever it may be looks. Um, and at the same time, they've built a competitive advantage through the software and the hardware. And we're trying in our own little way to do the same thing with our products. So, I mean, how then do you think um, fashion should or shouldn't even bother communicating um, this idea of luxury? It depends. I suppose it's it's about the programming. So just as people in 2007, people weren't programmed to understand a touchscreen and the nature of the user interface that took years for people to get habituated uh, to, you have a similar thing in, in fashion. You know, wh what is the, the most important thing? And this is kind of brings me into the world of logos and branding, because for me, uh, you you know that we put very very subtle branding on our products and most of it's not visible uh, you know it's a tiny tag in the corner somewhere which is no normally meant to be color coded with the products so you can barely see it and the point there is that our logos on a product not because people should buy it because hey i've got a massive horse on my chest but actually you buy it because that sign that is a sign it's a kite mark for quality not a not a logo for saying I'm I'm minted or I'm cool, you know, and that's to me what a logo should be. And in most cases, it's not. It's not for me to say. I mean, I don't, I can't speak for the the psychology of why people buy a product or um, do you? I mean, I can turn that around and say to you, do you think that there are brands out there that plaster their logo all over stuff because they know that people like to be seen to be consuming those products um, and they know that sticking a logo on an XYZ quality product might make people perceive it as being a higher quality product. And I think that is the case. But that's aspiration, isn't that? That's more aspiration than luxury, isn't it? It, it would be aspiration if the quality grew at the same level as the logo. Um, and this is my point. I, I fundamentally believe a logo should be a kite mark. It should be a symbol of quality. Uh, nothing more than that. And you don't need to plaster it all over the product. Um, I also find, I mean, from a from a pure mentality point of view, I find it odd that someone would want to walk around advertising XYZ brand. I just don't get that. But then I'm also in the world of, I don't quite get the whole influencer thing online. It's like the last thing I want to do personally is, is see someone, not that I'm on social media, but see someone online and, and have them, oh, wow, look, they're wearing that. I must be wearing that. You know, that's like, okay, I won't be wearing that. Yeah, and I, I, you know, that's that's another interesting point because, you know, where's the individuality? It's just conforming to something that somebody else is themselves conforming to. There's no kind of... It's it's quite funny. I mean, but and, and histories and, and society and cultural society is full of these wonderful examples of not only com com people conforming, but then people actively trying to be anti-establishment or non-conformist and doing it in such a way as to then conform with each other. And it's like, <laughs> you're just looking at them going, right, so your attempt to be individual means you hang out with a whole group of people who dress exactly like you and you're none of them, none of your individuals. Um, but it's, uh, you know, clothing says a lot about people and that's the reality of why people care about it. And I respect that. I just think that as a brand and as people who design and make clothes, our responsibility to the consumer or the end user, as we call it, is to give them a product that is 
as high quality as we can possibly make it and as beautiful as we can design it um, and most importantly priced accordingly so i'm a big believer in the relationship between price and quality determining what we call value and you know that something can cost uh, a pound and be terrible value and can cost a million pounds and be great value so price does not always equate to value or be a million pounds and be really shitty value that, that's the norm yes yeah that 40 pound cashmere sweater you know it's going to be great yeah C cost doesn't define uh luxury it, would you i mean on a very simple level yes you can say that the more expensive it is the more luxurious it is because luxury is equated to rarity or or accessibility and which is a whole another possible argument but for, for me it's about um well, actually, you, you know the story. I've ever told you the story about the press day I did in Munich where I, I met this wonderful older uh, member of the press and we were chatting and I was explaining to her about our micromodal T-shirts and the fact that they are, I won't go into how, you know, how they're made and how we did the fabric so that they are really, really long lasting. And she came out with this most wonderful phrase where she said that when she was a child, her grandmother used to say to her, darling we are too poor to buy cheap which i thought was just the most epic phrase um and and that's the reality in terms of the, the world we live in in disposable fashion um that 40 pound cashmere sweater how long will that last compared to the 400 pound cashmere sweater my father derek rose is 87 years old and you can go to his dressing room at home today and you will find clothes that are older than me, and I'm no spring chicken. Um, it's absolutely, I mean, he, he was actually round for dinner last night, and he was talk, he was wearing one of our cashmere half steps, and he was saying how much he loves it, which was praise from Caesar is praise indeed. Finally, he likes something. And, um, and then he was saying, and you know, this is good, but you should see my trousers. I've had them for 35 years. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, here we go. And that's the bar, you know. I, I need that cashmere sweater to last 35 years. And I'm, I still believe, and I, I think, you know, most people who really truly care about quality understand that the 400-pound uh, sweater, if it's made correctly and is genuinely worth 400 pounds, will be a better investment than the 40-pound one. Um, I remember there was a girl who was a housemate of um, – my then girlfriend in my youth. Uh, I won't name her name because she's in, still works in the media and stuff. But she was working at, a, I think it was Elle magazine as an intern or, you know, had started there. And, and she was literally paid nothing a week. But she would eat pot noodles every single day. Just pot noodles, nothing else, no variety. And I, I used to just observe her and it's like, I couldn't quite understand this obsession with pot noodles. And then once a month, she would buy a four or 500 pound pair of shoes. <laughs> and that for her was, you could call it her luxury, but that was, she was investing in quality that she knew would A, look good in the world that she was looking to develop her career in. And B, I'm going to guess she's still got those shoes today, 100 years later. But who knows? Uh, I, I won't name her, so we'll never find out. Yeah, and, I, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, money doesn't equate, you know, within the fashion world. It doesn't really equate to luxury. Um, because I think, you know, luxury can be, you know, it's, it's not about the money, 
really. But for many people, it will be. You know, ultimately, there is a type of consumerism whereby the more expensive it is, or the the you know the um, the display of wealth is also something that people take pride in. You know, it's look at me. I, I've done well. I've been successful, and I am wearing a. I don't know, whatever logo on my belt or this type of shoe or carrying this type of handbag. And I do not begrudge those people that enjoyment of their success one iota because ultimately it's horses for courses. And if that makes them feel good about themselves, and if they are proud of their achievement and, and, and people pick up on it, I'm happy for them because that's, as long as they, they enjoy themselves, that's the whole point, isn't it? Yeah, what yeah, I do yeah. feel bad about is the guys who get ripped off by where you end up with a a brand that is uh, not, not pricing things fairly, shall we say, you know, and taking advantage of the fact that the consumer really, really wants to have that logo or indeed just thinks, you know, for one reason or another, you know, I, I see stuff, I've seen fabrics, fabrics coming off the rolls, uh, rollers in a mill. I'm standing in the Czech Republic, the fabric's coming off, and on the salvage, it says made in Italy. And I'm just sitting there going, yeah, that just about sums up this industry. Um, or another one is Sea Island Cotton. Sea Island Cotton is West Indies Sea Island Cotton Association Cotton. It's 0.0004% of the world's cotton production. It's this wonderful long staple cotton, and they've built a name for themselves around uh, Sea Island Cotton. It's the Sea Islands in the in the Windies, and so to to buy the real thing, you end up getting a holographic sticker that is marked Wissica West Indies Sea Island Cotton Association. That way, you know you are getting that super rare, high value Sea Island cotton. And if you're buying Sea Island cotton, it should have that sticker. Basically, you know, if, uh, we as a brand, when we do Sea Island cotton, we spent so much money on the fabric, we damn well want people to know that it's the real thing um and yet there are major major brands out there and if you look at their marketing it will say sea island quality which is a, a good one big shirt company i know that does that and it's not sea island cotton they're taking advantage of the sea island name but misrepresenting it probably staying within the law no doubt because they're smart to, but the consumer thinks they're getting sea island cotton they're not they're getting Sea Island quality. Another one, an even better one I saw recently was, let's say there's a brand called uh, Bill Buck, just for the sake of it, because I won't name the real brand. And it says, Bill Buck's Sea Island Cotton. And each word is capitalized. And so you look at that and you're going, okay, this is, this is a major brand and it's Sea Island Cotton. But actually, you'll never see it called Sea Island Cotton without the Bill Buck in front of it. And the reason for that is it's not Sea Island Cotton. It's their version of Sea Island Cotton. So I, I get really wound up when, when consumers are, are looking to invest in high quality. They're building their, placing their trust in, in, in brands and logos. And then uh, my, only, my beef is where those, those brands take advantage of the consumer um, to misrepresent or ultimately not deliver fair value. These guys... You know, there are brands that are way more successful and way bigger than we are. And, and, and I'm, I'm some little pissant sort of, you know, so respect to them. They built big businesses and that was what they wanted to do. So, so fair enough. It's just not how we operate. No, and that goes back to where we started, really, because, you know, right from the beginning of our conversation, you were, you were talking about the way you operate and, you know, the, the kind of the community of your business. And that's what I was, I suppose, trying to get at 
maybe not as um, eloquently as you um, <laughs> answered the last question, but that the bigger companies don't operate in the same way that you do because it is about, you know, it's about turnover. And profitability, about, yeah. And profitability. So depending on the size of the company and, and the way it's been invested in, they'll be on a path. You know, they'll be under pressure. You you get a say you build a small business and you get to five million and or say you start with angel investors, they'll know how to get you to five million and then they want to flip you, and then they get to the next guy takes you to twenty and then they're gonna flip you. And the moment you're on that on that path, you have these external pressures which ultimately um can erode the values or the intentions of the, the original founder. Um, and I know businesses that have both successfully done that and also businesses that have failed because of those external pressures. But once you're in that situation and you you are, I mean, the worst thing I guess you can do is become a publicly quoted company because then you're in this crazy world of, of quarterly reporting and ultimately running a business with a short-term view, um, which is one of the incredible things about a company like Apple, where you had Steve Jobs when he was running it, basically telling the institutional investor community to get stuffed. Um, but ultimately, they had to take it from him because they would, Apple were doing so well, sort of second time round sort of thing, that uh, that that they couldn't argue with him. And even today, I think that, you know, Apple was one of the few large publicly quoted companies that takes a long-term view on what they do and, and is prepared to invest for the long haul. Whereas a lot, a lot of companies, I mean, I worked in a FTSE 100 company and, and they're just looking at the next quarterly report. And I think that added, that is ultimately something that is meant to deliver value to shareholders is actually doing the opposite. It is it is creating a short-term momentum, a short-term approach that over the long term will, will not deliver for those people who've invested in the business. And I think you can take that mentality and see how it can impact uh, small and medium fashion businesses that are looking to grow. Touching on technology, slightly sidestepping, I mean, what are the technological challenges you've faced over the past nine months? You mentioned earlier about, you know, things were in place um, with kind of teams and things like that. How's your business had to change as a result of kind of us pivoting? In case you hadn't noticed, I'm a total geek, um, or as we like to say, a nerd. Um, and, and, and that's a compliment in my world. So it's, uh, I, I've always been into technology. One of my one of my great claims to fame is I have an email from Steve Jobs, uh, which I'm very proud of, uh, and it's not telling me to piss off. One of the things I retain as a responsibility within the business is because I'm into technologies, I'm, I'm always looking at how can we do things better? And I'm look again, it's the mentality is one of institutionalized paranoia. So it's, it's not saying, oh, what's not working? Can we make it better? It's this is working, but can it still be better? So we had a perfectly functioning uh, platform that we were using and then I moved us off of that onto Teams because I worked out it would be better. I'd assessed Teams two, year, but two years before that and it was worse but I kept an eye on it and it, they, Microsoft invested so much in it that it got better. We have a very uh, successful website and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it really in the grand scheme of things but we've worked out that we think uh, we can do something better over the long term so we're just making an absolutely massive investment in a new web platform which will be part of a uh, a, a single customer view solution that will go across all our platforms in terms of all our channels wholesale retail and e-commerce so the, the the technological challenges ultimately for us don't exist in the sense that 
in terms of sales and communication, we have solutions, but they do exist in the sense that we are constantly questioning whether they can be improved. So at a, at a uh, selling and service and communication perspective, we're not challenged, but we are always looking to improve. In terms of the technology of products, say, um, that's a whole nother thing. And, and that's one of those um, that's one of those areas where I think that people get carried away and go down these these meandering paths just just because you can do something with technology, just because it can be done, doesn't mean that you should do it. And you know, the idea that I could design a piece of clothing that I can somehow wire so that it charges my phone whilst it's in my pocket. You know, yes, I could probably do that, and people do that. But do I really need that? And does it really mean make that clothing a, a better piece of clothing? And to me, the answer is, you know, an overwhelming no. Just forget it. You know, don't waste time on that. But there, there is a whole world of people looking at stuff like that. And credit to them, if you know, if that's something that works out for them, then great. But for me, technology should be something that enhances the experience in a non-intrusive manner and sorry go no, on. no i was just going to ask you about kind of virtual reality augmented reality are you looking um at that? so i've had uh again so if you just take vr as a starting point uh <laughs> this again won't surprise you but uh i i've dabbled with all of the existing vr headsets from a gaming perspective uh from the moment they came out and i would be there in Dixon's PC world, whatever it is, and they have these trial areas, and let's drag my family down, and we'd all practice and try on them. And I said to the guys, I said, look, when VR gets to the stage where it's wireless and I can fight Darth Vader with a lightsaber, then I'm thinking that VR is starting to be viable. Uh, and the Oculus Quest, as it happens, delivered that. So we, of course, had the o Oculus Quest at home. Um, so uh, VR and AR is uh, uh, stuff that I'm interested in and I look at. And there are uh, there are future applications for that within the business in terms of the uh, how do I look in a product and what might the fit be like of a product. But in terms of it being a, a useful application here and now, it's incredibly niche. Um, and even if you look at the virtual fitting and size guide stuff that people are trying to roll out, you then have the problem of fragmentation, where ultimately, you know, how many consumers are actually going to be bothered to register with XYZ pieces of software, to put in their dimensions, submit a photo, then they go onto another website and they're using a different platform and you have to do it again. We're not there yet. There isn't a, uh, the economy of scale and, and the, the, it hasn't been... Uh, so prominent and so common as, as to be an accepted part of the process. Might it get there in the future? Uh, I can absolutely see that being a benefit, but the solution has, is, as I understand it, based on what I've seen, and I do try and look at these things, it's not quite there yet. The, I mean, there are, I mean, you would have seen there are quite a few um, companies doing these virtual catwalks and using um, holographic imagery to show items, and especially now because yeah. you can't go anywhere, do anything. Um, they well, that's all, that's all from the, the, the form side of fashion. Um, and that's all of, you know, it's honestly, I, I'm the least fashion y person working in fashion, or at least I must be um, up there. I might not be the, 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 the greatest outcast, but. Um, I, I'm not into fashion, okay? I, I'm really sorry to anyone you know who is. I respect that some people are passionate about that stuff. That's just not me. Um, 
And so I look at these catwalk things and some of this design stuff, and I'm, I just honestly, I just go, who the hell's going to wear that? Uh, how do we, you know, when I'm, what am I, am I going to walk down the road and, and have a, someone ahead of me clearing a two meter path so they don't crash into me? Or, you know, and I, so I understand that some of that stuff is about, it really is about uh, the beauty of design and the originality of design and just the fact that people can design these things, but it's not practical clothing that, that will be worn. So for the, for some of the stuff that is, you know, the big brand designer fashion with the catwalks, I totally understand that the technology can be in the context of what they're not being able to do a catwalk must be a, a massive boon, you know, and fantastic for them, but it's, completely irrelevant to, to me and, and, and my life and, and my business um, but I'm happy for them if it helps yeah. I mean for years you, you you'll know you know the size UK exercise with body scanners and you know what you're referring to uploading body your measurements and then trying to upload them onto a site to try and get the thing to fit your body properly uh, it, it's obviously a long way to go uh, before it actually works I, I did see something uh, a few months ago of the, this woman who did exactly that and she ordered a dress and the dress arrived and didn't fit. <laughs> yeah. Well, so and, and the, you know what? We're lucky because we're in the business of making clothing that, that, that is ultimately for people's free time. Yeah. And the way we design our return. First of all, you, you can make the returns process really easy for people. If they have got the wrong size, you can make it super, super easy for people to send it back if they need to. But actually, our returns rate is single digit. You think that there are businesses out there with 20, 30, whatever percent returns, and we're, you know, we're closer to 5%. Um, it's that's is it lucky? I don't know, but we're very happy about that because I'll, there's also a sustainable angle about returns and and shipping and stuff like that. So by designing in a way that we think is uh, ultimately forgiving and flattering at the same time um, and practical first and foremost, we end up with less returns somehow. Uh, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, I mean, there are two things, because um, I, I know we um, are kind of coming to the end, but there are two things that I just thought of. One is your attitude to fashion probably probably defines what Derek Rose is, because it is about being comfortable, as opposed to, like you said, walking down the street and trying not to knock into somebody who's bought something off a catwalk. Uh, that was the one thing. <laughs> and then the other thing was about kind of environmental and sustainability issues, which are really important. And I was just wondering what your kind of attitude to that was. Yeah, it's um, so a lot of what goes on in the business, uh, I've realized it's in my head and I'm don't communicate it. My wife reassures me that I'm exactly the same at home. Um, so I appear to have a track record of thinking about things but never telling people them. So I recently uh, put up a, a blog post uh, setting out sort of where we are with sustainability. And so going back to, for example, the press day in, in, in uh, Munich and that lady, uh, lady's comment, first and foremost, the single biggest sustainability factor is you make products that last. Okay, and you avoid disposable fashion. Uh, and I think that is probably the single biggest thing that we as an industry can do. And then it's about the sum of the parts like anything else. So, for example, um, making sure you're using recycled and recyclable materials. Um, we found a way to remove the magnets that we had in our packaging. We've just rolled that out. We have eco packaging, uh, a standard on our uh, stuff that we send out via the web. We tell people you are entitled to a free fancy gift box from which we remove the magnets and the spot UV. But ultimately, unless you ask for it, 
we won't charge you more for it, but unless you ask for it, you're getting the normal eco packaging because that is the right thing to do. One of the things I'm really happy about recently is, um, and again, this will no doubt upset somebody somewhere, but uh, we um, we spent the last, it's actually taken ages, but nearly two years trying to develop uh, cardboard hangers. And I know cardboard hangers exist, but ultimately we wanted to get hot cardboard hangers that are fully, fully uh, recyclable in all aspects and that still look nice and work brilliantly for our products so that we're going to be able to roll them out across our retail and any wholesale partners who will have them. And I can well imagine there'll be wholesale partners who go, we can't possibly have cardboard hangers in our store, we're too posh. Um, uh, but hopefully they'll, they'll, they'll see that that's actually, you know, where where the future lies and for us it's you then end up with a win in terms of the the weight and the volume of stuff that you're sending from a to b um the fact that the materials themselves are eco-friendly um and then it's just sending a message that, that says it, it's not a big thing and it's not necessarily derek rose doing that isn't going to change the world we all live in but if we everyone does their little bit it's the same as the protect and create jobs if every small business thinks like we do and looks after people and ultimately runs it in a conservative but growth oriented manner so that you can protect and create jobs just all of those little bits that we all do as a society and as a collection of businesses will move us as a nation uh forward and i'm quite quite big on the, the sum of the parts do you think that encouraging consumption then creates this wasteful mentality in 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 people? Does encouraging consumption create a wasteful mentality? It depends on the products that you're encouraging people to consume. Um, so you got to understand it's if everybody ran their business like we did, and everybody made products to the standard that we do, I don't have a business, or at least I have a, a, a I have a much harder time. So for us, the, we, we need the people out there making average products. We need the people out there overcharging people in terms of the relative value of the product because that's what helps us stand out. Um, do I need them in the long term? Of course not because ultimately I, I think that people will, uh, will, will buy our products because they can also trust us. For me, the logo and the name is, is, is essentially about trust. So when you talk about, for example, you all know about this from your background, but the concept of brand stretch. One of the things I wrote in my, when I did the business plan back in 2003 was I, I was thinking about brand stretch and how you take a company called Derek Rose Pajamas Limited and end up selling swimwear. So we, for example, we first started developing swimwear in 2006 and we realized that we didn't have the brand stretch to be able to carry that off and we didn't have the expertise to do it to the standard that we wanted to do it. So we spent some time on it and we parked it. So brand stretch is, is, is really important, but it's ultimately built on trust. So if we went out and made a, 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 a private jet tomorrow, I'm going to guess that my brand equity will not allow such a level of brand stretch and people won't buy a Derek Rose jet, even though it might be better than the others. But rest assured, if I launched XYZ, category of clothing tomorrow we'll only ever launch that if we think that it's better than what's out there and that's the key is is you you can spend years building a brand and building trust but you can destroy it as our friend mr ratner knows you can destroy it in five seconds flat and 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 that's about the trust thing and and that's the the most valuable thing that we as a business have
the relationship with the consumer. You're quite passionate about the, the product and the quality of the product and that it speaks for itself. And that people don't need to buy £40 cashmere jumper because if they buy one that is of a better quality, it's going to last much longer, hence your dad and his 35-year-old trousers. Um, but how do we then change people's behaviour to stop them just buying all this tat? Do we need to, or is that kind of, does it not matter? Yeah. I'm just thinking about, you know, the impact on the environment and, you know. Well, you've got a generation of kids growing up who are more um, uh, environmentally aware anyway, because of the world they're growing up in compared to us. Uh, if I look at my kids as well. And so they're looking at, uh, you know, secondhand clothing and, and how that market works and recycling and upcycling. And they're looking at, I think they are taking a greater interest in the ethics and sustainability of the brands that they're investing in. As long as these brands are being honest uh, with the, the, you know, the true uh, details of what they're making, where they're making it, and how it's transported, and all the other factors that come into a successful, sustainable approach, then I think that those pressures that come from the consumers will ultimately drive the uh, brands to improve themselves. So it's, 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 it's less about us pressuring them and educating them to, to buy better quality or sustainable uh, or eco-friendly, but actually reacting to the pressures that, that the consumer places on, on us. And, and um, you know, it's, it's, there must be some, some old adage that you can quote relating to the fact that the, the consumer is, is, uh, is certainly not stupid, but in fact is, is a smart cookie. And, and there's a reason that markets react to consumer demand. On that note, um, I have one final question for you, um, which is, what is your luxury? I don't even know if I should be asking you that question. Well, I think you know the answer. Um, currently, it's uh, no, I mean, there are, I have different types of luxuries. So um, obviously, time with family, uh, time of friends are you know i really miss the fact that I, I haven't caught up with friends in the way that we normally would uh so the the pandemic has made one aware of the luxuriousness of, of being able to enjoy relationships and friendships in that way and in terms of say time time alone which is the other thing we care about you know full well from our conversations that i am currently wholly invested in my call of duty career and it is a genuine luxury to be able to sit down for two hours and play call of duty of an evening and and, and whether it's that or whether it's you know summertime and i'm lying lying in the garden just reading a book or listening to a podcast those are the the little luxuries of life but they all center around the true luxury which is time uh, and time not working time to be enjoyed with with friends family or oneself uh, that for me is life's true luxury sasha rose thank you so much this has been this has been fantastic it's been great speaking to you and i'll just show you something i don't know if you can see this sasha equals time sasha time <laughs> <laughs> Um, I thought that time might be your luxury. I'd written it down. Um, oh, so you wrote that down beforehand? Yeah. Shouldn't it be everyone's? I mean, what's your luxury? Space. So not necessarily physical space, but just space to be, you know, to do. Uh, you know, it probably equates to time. There'll um, be but some it's not... Einstein-based relationship between <laughs> space and time, won't there? Doubt it. <laughs> Thank you, Sasha. And thank you to our partners, Intellect Books, and thank you for listening. Join us next time 
on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. <laughs>